This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we should start by saying that if we sound a little different today... Uh, It's not just because we're still sad. We are still sad, and we're going to talk about why in a bit. But we are remote recording again, and not just because we wanted to hearken back to the early days of the pandemic when none of us could leave our houses. (laughs) We had some technical issues at our studio. Although that's an unasked-for benefit of having to do this is that it's safer, (laughs) but... Actually, it's kind of the last thing we wanted to do. We actually wanted to see each other and see our friend Brandon and be back in the studio, but... The gremlins got the better of us. Right. So the next four episodes, this episode and the next three, I should say, are going to be recorded remotely. But I think we have a pretty good remote recording setup here, thanks to our genius, Brandon. Well, I was going to say, actually, we have Brandon. I don't know about the setup. <laughs> but our the, the best part of the setup is that we got Brandon to put this together for us. Because if it was just up to you and me, I don't think any of it would sound this good. Yes, indeed. So there's that. We want to say that up front. Um, There's something I want to say to my best friend up front, which is going to be a bit of a surprise to him. Well, it's not a surprise. He's heard this before, but he's going (laughs) to... 
I'm retiring after this episode. You have to do the next three by yourself. This is the final Christopher Rice portion of TDPS Presents. It's just going to be TDPS Presents Eric. And the topic every week is going to be, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? Eric Shaw Quinn. No, although I think that would be an excellent... I think that would be an excellent podcast that we should definitely develop. What the fuck with Eric Shaw Quinn? <laughs> um, but what I really wanted to say, and I think if this is your first time listening to us, I should say this up front. Um, my mother died a little over a month ago. And so it took us a bit to come back to unscripted podcasts. We, um, Our previous episodes, we went into our archives and we brought you some special presentations of old episodes we had done with her on our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which was a live show at the time. And um, we were so moved by all of your responses to that and um, all of your loving words. Um, But I wanted to say that it would have not been possible for me to stay sane this past month and a half without you, my best friend, my business partner, my co-host, Eric Shaw Quinn, truly. Um, And you ensured that we... Anne passed away before the holidays. We knew that with COVID and the holidays, it was going to be next to impossible to do the private family funeral that I was envisioning uh, quickly. And so that meant we had to sort of get through the holidays um, until about January 15th, which is when we were able to schedule everything and get the close family together in New Orleans for the service. And that stretch of time was arguably one of the most difficult periods of my life, and you made it easier and you made it better. You opened your home on Christmas Eve for me. Let's not get crazy. You didn't open your home for anybody else, but you had a place. <laughs> you had greater Christmas. Well, everybody build. else already had plans, so it was a pretty safe bet. But yeah, it was and wonderful you- to to actually. We realized that while we usually spent the holidays at Anne's. One of the things we enjoyed the best about the holidays was it was a time that we actually spent more time together than we usually do. We do this podcast and we talk on the phone all the time, but we don't actually see each other all that much. And so. (laughs) And and we live three blocks apart, too. (laughs) Which is, you know, standard LA operating procedure. But, um, But on the holidays, we spend days and weeks together, and Mm -hmm. it's really the only time that ever happens. And so. I think we really got to enjoy that. Um, this we holidays did. And be reminded that there was still a big part of the holidays that we did still enjoy, even though one of our party was no longer going to be with us. Right. And I think that um, you do a wonderful Christmas village in your home, which we have posted about on social media a bunch, called Greater Christmasville. And Absolutely. you put it, it has together. It's on Facebook page, like Greater right. Christmasville. and. We'll do a better job next year of updating Greater Christmasville than we did this year. There was one. Take my word for it. Maybe there'll be photographs, but. Yeah. But yeah. And so on Christmas Eve, we watched, I don't remember what we watched on Christmas Eve. I remember what we watched on Christmas night. We watched Being the Ricardos. Right. Which I quite liked. We watched one episode of The Witcher on Christmas Eve. Yes. (laughs) The Screaming Monster Show, because we are, after all, us. That's how we dealt with our grief. Screaming Monsters in the Woods. Um. And then on New Year's Eve, we got together at my house, which is very rare for us because I very rarely have people in my house. And we watched yeah, the I new Matrix been movie. Since for over a year. And we watched the new Matrix movie on HBO Max. Which... But in preparation, we watched all of the old ones prior to. So we, we actually studied for Christmas Eve. Mm hmm. 
We needed a project. I think we needed a place to sort of focus our attention and our energy. Um, and, I, and I've and i been telling people who have asked me, you know, what has this been like for you? And I said, I, I didn't want to psych myself out by saying that it would be better once the funeral was over with. But the fact of the matter is, there were aspects of it that were much better when the funeral was over with. There was a tremendous amount of relief to know that she was home, that we had brought her home in a way that that um, did have a sort of public element to it, which was the arrival at the airport, which we, we released images from and we've released a video from, so that the fans and the people of New Orleans who helped make her such a success could know that she was resting in the family mausoleum. And, and to be able to do something small with the family. And I think the most important thing, the thing that we're going to stress over and over again, is that there will be a very large public celebration of life later in the year in New Orleans. But as I told uh, the Times-Picayune, the local paper, I don't want to do a half-assed, rushed version of it. We really only get one shot at a celebration like this, and I want to make sure we do it upright. So it's going to take some time to plan. And we will release all of those uh, details on Anne's Facebook page, on our Dinner Party Show Facebook page. All, you won't be able to miss it once we're ready to announce anything. So I don't want people to think we're keeping it a secret. But a, an interesting part of this has been balancing the public grief with the private grief. And I think that there's no way, and I think you put it pretty well to me. There's no way with somebody of Anne's notoriety of her career, of her stature and accomplishment, someone who's had as loving a fan base as she's had for so many years that we could just say, okay, go away, leave us alone. We're going to grieve in private. We had to do something that was about letting people know that this passage was taking place. And so I think we managed to accomplish that. I think we did something that was um, somewhat public, that allowed for a catharsis, um, but also we have been having our own sort of private experience of this. And I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this now is because we're not going to devote the entire episode to this. I think the the theme of today's episode is we we do want to talk about um, the new book, which is going to be Anne's final book, um, uh, which I wrote with her. And it's called Ramses the Dam, the Reign of Osiris. But I thought before we got into the discussion of that and what the book is about and what went into the writing of it, we, we sort of needed to address this up front. And I think it's also worth pointing out to um, everyone that, you know, beyond just um, losing Anne, there was also the stress of the demands from mm-hmm. all of the people who loved Anne wanting more mm-hmm. um, and trying to balance that out. I think you did an amazing job of that. Mm-hmm. Of trying to balance both your own personal issues, all of the demands that anyone would have um, from dealing with the death of a loved one, planning the funeral in the middle of a COVID pandemic, out of town during mm-hmm. the holidays. And in addition to that, you know, an enormous amount of interest and concern from a right. really large number of people. So I think it's, if anyone felt slighted, it was not intentional. Like mm-hmm. nobody has ever not thought of all of the people who love Dan. I think that the thing that you're talking about, the celebration of life is part of the plan to acknowledge and include as many people as want to be included right? Um, in celebrating this wonderful person that we've all lost 
Um, mm-hmm. But the last few weeks have been their own personal challenge, and everybody has been doing, doing their best, and we hope that no one has felt like they were left out or unheard or not responded to. It wasn't – that wasn't it. It was just that mm-hmm. there was so much going on. And uh, like I say, I think you've done an amazing job. I'm, I'm Certainly, I appreciate the acknowledgement um, – but I, I left out the there. most important part of the tribute, which was that in tribute to you today, since we are at home in our pajamas, I am wearing the turkey slippers that you gave me as a Christmas present. <laughs> I think you actually had a pair for every member of the family, and th- these are mine. And I have to say, I am quite impressed with how comfortable they are. They have like, it's like an air cushion. It's like a turkey well, air mattress. Foams. Yeah, they're they're a thing. I'm going to wear these a lot, even though they're they look like foams, giant turkeys. They're yummy, yeah. uh, delicious. Uh, uh, really, they're actually delicious. Yeah, it's like you're putting your foot in the part of the turkey where the stuffing would go. <laughs> <laughs> the drumsticks go on either side of your ankle. Uh, and it's got toe stuffing. <laughs> See, that's it. You keep me laughing, Eric Shaw Quinn, no turkey matter what with happens. Toe stuffing. Toe and toe stuffed. I hope there are no chestnuts in there. That would be very uncomfortable. That would be weird. And I now know what will be the image in my head every time I stick my feet inside them. But they are, they are comfortable enough that I don't care what I envision. Um, but I think you've always had a sense of occasion. And I think, as I said in my Instagram post about you specifically this past week, um, and I think it was something that a friend shared, that it is possible to feel multiple emotions at the same time. It's possible to be grieving and to laugh at a good joke. It's possible to right. be grieving and to go out and enjoy yourself and to have meet with friends and have a good time. I think um, the Irish have been about teaching us that for years because the wake is still very festive, even though it's at the sad, a very sad occasion. And I absolutely, we would have done a wake if it hadn't been for COVID. You know, we would have had a little yeah. wake for Anne, but unfortunately it just wasn't possible. Um, so, you know, like I don't mean to, to make the whole episode about this, but I just thought it was the... Well, and we know, are talking about the book that you all wrote together. So I think that since the third party can't be here for the conversation, right. we ought to at least acknowledge her and um, and say farewell and... Uh, Yes, and all of us, the readers included, can cherish this opportunity to spend this time with her reading this wonderful new book for, that you all have put together um, that's coming out. Well, it's out. By the it's time out. this comes out, it's out. Yeah, February 1st. Also, I think we, w- we want to thank the Garden District Bookshop in New Orleans, which did a midnight release party, um, which unfortunately I could not attend. But they opened the store at around 11, and they invited people to come in costume, and they put the book on sale right at midnight. And uh, that was a lovely, lovely thing that they did. The Garden District Bookshop, if you don't know, that you know, Anne had a long relationship with them. That was the store where she pulled up in a horse-drawn carriage and came out in a coffin, you know, which seems weird to talk about now, but it's also kind of great because it's so much what she was about. She was about sort of flaunting the grim side of mortality and writing stories that were about living forever, you know, not feeling held down by death, you know, in a weird way. And so, but that was the shop. She got in it and and all those images that are popular on the internet of her in the white wedding dress with her arms folded over, 
her chest. It was out in front of Garden District Bookshop on Britannia and Washington Avenues in New Orleans in the Garden District, not far from the old house where we lived. I was going to say, years. it was your neighborhood bookstore. Yeah, totally. I was up there all the time. I'd go in there on a Saturday and just sack out and read about 80 different first chapters and never commit to buying an actual book. Why do they call it The Rink? I think it used to be either an ice skating rink or a roller rink back in the day. I mean, in the day, you know, like the 40s <laughs> or the 50s. 1852. Yeah. And it they was brought ice um, down from Maine and put it in and <laughs> skated on it for 20 it was, minutes until it melted. It's always been a sort of um, boutique little shopping center. You know, it's the Garden District. So the right. shops were always kind of high end. But for many years, my mother had a gift shop in there called the Anne Rice Collection. And I was telling this story to some family members after the funeral that it was, it never really made a profit. It didn't make any money, but she would sell her MRI on a t-shirt and my dad's painting she would sell on t-shirts. And I was forced to work there for a summer so that I would know what it was like to have a job besides being Anne Rice's layabout son. And, um, so you she found a it. job that paid you for being Anne Rice's layabout son. <laughs> just in her shop. She just relocated me from the home right. to her gift shop. She moved your fainting sofa to a different location. <laughs> right, exactly. But she got this giant statue of Nosferatu, I think it was, but it's, it's sort of terrifying, open-mouthed version of Nosferatu, and he was pointing. And she put it in the front entrance and didn't realize that it was angled right at the at the travel agency next door. And the owner of the travel agency came out in a rage and said, people are going to think their plane is going to crash because this vampire is pointing at them as they leave my travel agency. Because that's how it works. And I think if the travel agent believed that, maybe that was the reason not to book with them and it was not Nosferatu. (laughs) Superstitious travel agency. I'm sorry, the vampires have cursed this flight. We can't book you on it. Uh, well, that was just a, a snapshot of life with Anne. And so I, I think when we come back, we're going to talk about writing with Anne. And we're going to right? talk about Ramses the Damned, the reign of Osiris. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So we're talking today about Ramses the Damned, the reign of Osiris, which is, and I'm this sorry is the to say. third that you and Anne wrote together? The second that Anne and I wrote together. The first book in the series was published in 1990. And while I had many chirpy ideas about it as a 10-year-old at the kitchen table, they were not well received <laughs> at the time. 
What were your ideas when you were at the... Oh, I remember it was actually dad put me up to it. I think because he knew that she was really not interested in what he had to say, but he wanted there to be a pearl necklace that was placed on a character that could supernaturally constrict around their throat and choke them to death. And I remember, mom, 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 what you should do is you should have this pearl necklace. You should, Did your father put you up to this? Is this his idea? You, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, no. <laughs> she was not, it was not the aesthetic of the book to have a pearl necklace <laughs> that choked people. And you know that um, there's another meaning for pearl necklace. Do you think he was, <laughs> you think he was... You think it was a, a, an adult joke between the two of them? You know what? I really don't think so, but I will tell you, my dad was the kind of guy where he would have thought that was pretty damn funny, so I, I wouldn't put it past him, but no. I think he thought he had some ideas for the book that she should listen to, and I think she thought, this is my book, and, and I'm going to go my own way with it. But Okay, so the origin story, though, of this project back then, this series, is actually interesting, and um, it involves a legal dispute which I haven't really talked about a bunch, but the mummy was an idea that Anne originally took to Hollywood and she put it into development with some producers for television at the time. And at the time, the idea of, of Anne working in television was like, her work was so transgressive and it was so erotic and sensual. And this was the age of three network stations. You know, I just, I don't know who ever thought that this was going to be a fit, but, you know, this was, the idea was that and I think this was another example of her being wildly ahead of her time in terms of diversity and inclusion, was that, you know, the, the coffin lid comes off, the mummy right. unwraps itself, and he's gorgeous, and he's soulful, and he's brilliant, and he's been an immortal witness to history, and he has served as counselor to pharaohs throughout time, and he's wandered the ancient continent of Europe. You know, it's that, it's that Anne Rice idea of flipping the script around the monster. And so she developed the idea in television. It didn't go anywhere. You know, it wasn't picked up. And so she wrote it as a novel, and those producers tried to sue her and tried to claim they owned the copyright on something they didn't own the copyright on. And so they lost in Los Angeles, and they appealed, I guess, to whatever the circuit court was. And years later, fairly recently, an attorney friend of mine here in town, a very successful man, said to me that he had cause to read the written judgment on the appeal from the circuit court. And the first line of that decision was, we know that you in Hollywood know how to do lunch. It's time you learned how to do the law. <laughs> wow. I mean, they were shot down. And wow. uh, they are, yeah, they are not. So, the idea was to it was going to be a companion series to the vampires. Well, not really a companion series, but another Anne Rice series that would run alongside the Vampire Chronicles. Queen of the Damned, which was published in 1988, the novel, was such a monster hit, and it so changed our lives overnight that nobody gave a shit about the mummy anymore. I mean, it was... But the, the irony of that was there were, in fact, a lot of people who really had fallen in love with the mummy, and it became its distinct a distinct Anne Rice fan base, if you will. And uh, over the years, as the vampire novels were huge hits and went to number one, and then the witches were the, had a similar level of success, there was this constant drumbeat of, when are you bringing back the mummy? When are you bringing back Ramses? Where's Ramses? And she would always say that she wasn't, you know, oh, it doesn't feel right, I'm not going to do it. And she was on my case delightfully so, about adapting it as either a movie or a television series, specifically as cable and streaming became 
uh, open the field for what yeah, you can do in television. Yeah, she was a big fan of the golden age of television, peak TV. Absolutely. Peak TV. She loved it. And uh, ironically, and this is a detail a lot of people don't know, she was starting to put together the raw bones of a sequel, and she was assembling a cast of new characters. And I'm not exactly sure how this came about, but those characters became the wolf gift. Margon the Godless, who is the wise old werewolf Morphinkinder character in, right. the, in the Wolf Gift Chronicles, was originally invented as a character in the for a Ramses comeback. But it, for some reason, it didn't fit, or she decided that she was more excited about doing a werewolf project, and so he was shuttled into that, or he took his place in that. Um, but I, and I don't really remember this precise moment. She turned to me and said, "Do you want to do this?" this book with me, but, but when she turned to me, for me, it was the right time. I really, cause I, I, I think I needed a project. <laughs> I can't remember what was going on, but it was like maybe a book hadn't quite hit its mark or I hadn't earned back in advance or whatever. But at the same time, collaborating with Anne was its own special, um, you know, Anne was a very strong-willed, very passionate woman. And so I right, thought, really, okay, how did that go? I mean, how oh, did wow. you guys, how did you negotiate that? Did you do back and forth? Did you write a chapter and she wrote a chapter or did who wrote first, who wrote second? How did you guys negotiate that process? Well, here's my standard interview response, which is, and you're, you're obviously <laughs> being, being my best friend and co-host and producing partner, you're going to get more than that, but I'm going to start yeah, you there. You better believe it. The, the the thing that was, I think, made this possible or made this easier as a starting point for us collaborating was that it was a world that was already built. And it, the first novel, The Mummy, ends with a cliffhanger. Part of why the fans of it were so eager for a sequel for so long. Right. So we knew we had some expectations that we could slide right into. We had to pick up right from where we left off. We had an established cast of characters that had to be, their threads had to be, we had to continue to unspool their threads, right? If we had been building something from the ground up, I'm not sure we would have been equipped to do that with each other um, because that's hard. That's really hard. As you, you and I have built many things from the ground up, but we, we started out as best friends. You know, I think mother and son, it's challenging. Right. And it's also would have been challenging because she and I had very different writing styles. I was much more of a con gritty contemporary writer. She would often say publicly that she felt that she was impressed by my ability to write about things that had happened to me recently to, and to process right. them and to sort of pass them through the lens of fiction. Uh, it, that was not something she did. She, she found meaning in the narratives that galvanized her were in the, the, the sort of broad sweep of history and, and um, cosmic questions, wrestling with faith, things like that. Um, so I, uh, that was of all, I think, been a handicap if we had been building from the ground up. But we had this world to slide into together. So she said, come out to the desert. She was living in Palm Desert at the time. And we're going to make a lot of coffee. And I'm going to make my sister Karen sit at the table with us. And we're going we're gonna to kind of hash it out. We're going to hash out what this book is going to look like. And um, that's what we did. It was two solid days of almost like a story meeting. And we would, um, she would always share this detail when we were interviewed about this, but she loved these big uh, sketch pads. Strathmore, I think they're called. They're, and they're really heavy duty, professional grade right. sketch pads. She would write on them in Sharpie. That was how she took notes. And then she would be able to sort of stick them up on the walls and have them as a, as a sort of easy to read, unmissable outline, if you will. 
So we did that, and but during the course of those 48 hours, we locked horns over one issue. You know, the, the, a center piece of the first book is that Ramses, after having been resurrected in Edwardian England, is taken back to Egypt so that he can either say farewell or decide to stay, that it's his true home. And while there in a museum, he sees these unidentified remains that have been preserved in mud for um, thousands of years, and he realizes they are Cleopatra, who was his lover and who he served as a, an immortal counselor. And he pours the elixir of life over these remains, and they come back to life. And with, in a sort of monstrous horror show of resurrection, right out of the sort of H. Ryder Haggard tales that the book was a tribute to. And so Cleopatra in the first book is kind of out for revenge. She is not That's asked to be resurrected. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It seemed like Cleopatra was in the first book, and she was the mm -hmm. cliffhanger, wasn't she? She was. She was absolutely the cliffhanger. What happens to Cleopatra? Why is she so angry? But the question that Anne saw as hanging over any further exploration of her story was, is it truly Cleopatra? Or is it what, what is called, there's a moment in the first book where Julie, the, the, the ingenue character, or at least that's how she starts out, she grows into a lot more than that, says to Ramses, you've not brought back the real Cleopatra. You've not. There's no way that the soul of Cleopatra was residing in this desiccated flesh. You've brought back a clone of her, and that's why she's mad and, and grasping at consciousness and unable to remember anything. So we had to answer that question, and I was very committed to the idea that the second book, she should be a villainess and a monster. And, and Anne was resistant to that. She said, you know, I don't really do villains like that. My, my book is about illuminating the characters that we have considered to be monsters or dismissed as monsters. And I said, you know, I understand that, you know, I was very sort of like, I understand Miss Rice, but... <laughs> And um, she said, okay, so we took that, I took that outline and I set out to write a first draft, which she was then going to go over start from finish to answer your question about work process, right? And um, I got into it and I realized she was right. And I was completely wrong that this character was far too rich and interesting and that the, the Anne Rice aesthetic um, dictated that she be um, nuanced and struggling and not just out to murder and destroy and to, right. and to destruct. So, and that was also, and you know, there were things, there were conversations happening in pop culture around that time about um, diversity and inclusion. And I didn't really like the look of having a brown skinned queen just murdering people right and left. You know, I think, because I thought one of the great well, joys. Although she did kind of have a history of doing that. She does, but she was <laughs> she, she had a was bad brought reputation back. coming into book two. She, she was came with a bad reputation. Without her consent, that was what I was at, you know, and nobody really guided her through this process. It's like suddenly you're alive in 1914. Right. I, <laughs> Ramses was was given the elixir of life like almost while he was still alive, right? Or Ramses stole the elixir of life. That's the origin story. When he was king, he came off the battlefield and he was exploring these caves after a defeat, after he defeated the, Hitt the Hittites in battle. And he came across this old priestess who was harboring it in her cave and he stole it from her. She mocked him and he stole it from her. And so we get into 
who was working with that priestess and the origins of the elixir and where it really came from and who comes looking for it. That's all book two. But he had never actually been dead. He wasn't brought back to life. He was just given eternal life by the elixir. But Cleopatra had actually left this plane and been dragged back or had she? Exactly. That's a much more interesting question. Exactly. And it's a much more Anne Riceian question. And it was, you know, as I said, it was a world Anne Rice built. So that's how we did it. And then she really went through that draft and um, tore it to pieces. <laughs> you know, like she just said, there was a lot. And I wanted it to be that way. I didn't want to write a detailed outline and then begin writing. I was like, let me plunge. That was the word she would always use. Go plunge. That was how she described writing when it took over. Plunging. And, uh, I went and did that knowing that this was going to serve as a very rough draft. And it, right. sure enough, it did. And she said, this, I think, is working. There was a whole character that she felt was not working. And so we dropped it. And there were things that usually happen in my writing process uh, that happened in this one as well, which is I typically invent several characters to do the job of one. And as I refine and as I revise, I shift more of the weight and the and the stakes and the responsibility onto a single character. I don't know why that is. And it, it's something I actually enjoy doing in revision because it's almost like you're nominating several people to do the same job in your first draft and you find out who's capable by the time you've finished that version. <laughs> so that was really, and out of that, we invented a new character, Bektaten, who is the, the ancient African queen. I love Bektaten. Yeah. She yeah. is one of my favorite inventions. I just think yeah. she is. I think she warrants her own series. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, she, you know, she was some someone that I proposed and that mom really let me cut loose with. And um, so there's a lot. Anyway, I'm, I'm running my mouth. You're asking me simple questions and I'm going on with 20 well, minute answers. But and- it, it, it would be difficult to answer the question of how did you write a novel together in a single sentence? <laughs> That's true. That's very, very true. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio Um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, 
I never shut up about tea. So now that we've kind of covered the background of how the story got written, shall we, you know, without being spoilery, shall we talk about the story? Like, where do we start? Where did the last book leave us? And then where are we headed from here? The, well, I will say this, and, and you know, we signed a two-book deal, so we did know that eventually there would be a third book. But we did not end the second book on a cliffhanger. We really gave it some resolution, and we closed things out. And so that opened up the field for book three with one very major exception, which was a fact of history. We had arrived at the outbreak of World War One. Yeah, that's really, that's going to have its own kind of uh, yeah. gravity. And I was really, really resistant to the idea of doing a Ramses novel that was happening amidst this war based on what I knew about the war, which was considerably less than when I started researching it for this novel, because I didn't see how are we going to do the splendid delight, uh, not delightful necessarily, but the splendid sensual Gothic romance of the first two during this global loss of innocence event. You know, like, because that's that's really how I think we've come to view the First World War. It was a, a catastrophic series of fuck-ups, for lack of a better word, that contributed to it, to its outbreak. Communication failures across Europe. People unable to call things down in time. You know, just, it was, it was everybody assuming it was only going to last for several weeks. That it was going to be, that there were so many parties involved that it would be too destructive for them to all go to war together. And so people would immediately, because of mutual financial interests, dial it down. I just, it, you read about it and you just see everybody heading towards a cliff. And you know that those trenches are coming and that, that intractable, brutal, that, that new weaponry. Anyway, so I, I didn't want to do it and <laughs> wanted to skip over the war. And she was like, no, we're not skipping over the war. And I think part of that was she felt that. There were fascinating insights that Ramses, as a former king who had entered battle himself, could have about contemporary, in that moment at least, yes. war. That how Because that is the moment war really changed. It became less formal. It became less we meet on a field and we stick to our own sides and we just fight it out until, you know, whatever. It, it right. became, yeah. And she really wanted to explore the mood and the emotional response that he would have and really that all of these immortals would have to seeing how the advances in technology were going to um, endanger the world and change war forever. And so that was really kind of became a jumping off place for, but, uh, you know, and then, and this is, I'm torn about this and you can maybe give me some guidance here because the central event of the story happens midway through the book. And I think it's kind of spoilery to reveal it, but it was the Anne's idea. She said, this is what's happening next. She's like, we're doing this next. Oh and yeah. I don't reveal it. I think you I'm have not to let people, it. because it's so, as you're reading the book, it's such a, a startling yeah. development that it, it, I, it, I really think it's so much more fun to discover it as you go along. Okay. I have the great privilege of, having these two writers, um, or having had these two writers, now mm -hmm. it's just the one. I'll have to either get another writer or just make do with Christopher. Um, right. <laughs> but saying, okay. Like, I remember there was a point, I think it was, I think it may have been the last Mummy book, but I don't mm -hmm. think so. I can't remember. There was some book um, 
and had given me books after she had written them before they were published before, I think just as sort of a courtesy, or that's what I thought. Anyway, so I had gotten one, and I was thinking, well, I'll save this for a, you know, rainy day and a treat and whatever, and <laughs> she called or texted or wrote me an email or something. She was like, well, where, where, where's your response to the book? Have you finished the book yet? And I was like, well, no, I, I haven't gotten around to it. She said, well, I've got to make it meeting with the publisher and I want your re reaction to it. I was like, you want my reaction? It was such an honor, mm -hmm. but I, I yeah. mean, I hadn't even considered that as a possibility. So right. uh, I had the great honor with this one of, of doing the same. And so I've, I've had the experience of, of having the, the the revelation, so I think talk in broad terms about mm -hmm. where the book goes, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I that would be my my take on it. Well, okay, so this day, I think that's I won't tell, and but this I will tell because this is more general, and you, anybody who has read and enjoyed Anne's books knows this that the the immortals don't interfere with history. That throughout the Vampire Chronicles, throughout the throughout the Ramses novels, even the Morphin Kinder, the immortals have a strong aversion to using their power to interfere with the course of human events. They view it almost as if it would be a form of abuse of their power, okay? The blood communion that the vampires arrive at later right. is about... Um, creating their own stable community, for lack of a better word, their own world apart where they're safe and they care for each other. That's the long arc of the Vampire Chronicles, right? Um, similar things in the Wolf Gift Chronicles with the Nidak Point. These, these communities, these tribes, these immortal tribes. And so under no circumstances could I um, pitch her on any ideas that were about Ramses and his immortal companions going out and, and fucking with the war. Okay, for lack of a better term. Um, but that struggle, I could absolutely explore. Unlike and there's Wonder one, Woman. Right, unlike Wonder Woman. And we did have a Wonder Woman. Remember, we showed her Wonder Woman because she said, I want to, what about this? Let's do a poison gas story. And we said, you know, Mom, that sounds really similar to Wonder Woman. And she said, I haven't seen Wonder Woman. So we watched Wonder Woman. And she said, all right, we don't have to do poison gas. We can do something else. But, right. but it was, it, it's always about the relationships with Anne. You know, any of her books ultimately are about the relationship. She didn't do Queen of the Damned is probably the closest she gets to a ticking clock thriller, right? A, an apocalyptic showdown. And it is still about how the Ancient Ones and the newer vampires are going to relate to Queen Akasha. Are they going to bend to her, right? You know, it's about um, it's about their personalities and their characters. And yes, their, and then their every view. so often you cut away to that TikTok of... The, one of the twins marching. Oh, through the, yeah, totally. And then you're back to, it's it's almost as though you cut to a different chapter and the chapter is tick-tock. And then you cut right. back to the... Oh, yeah, totally. I just That consciousness the, yeah. coming towards her, coming mm -hmm. through the wilderness, coming through the... Yeah. Yeah, it was really that. That was It's just one of her greatest books. It's yeah. one of her greatest books it, by, by far. It's a, I, I had a memory of, of my Aunt Karen reading it in um, manuscript form at the kitchen table of our house on 17th and Noe in the Castro district in San Francisco before we moved to New Orleans. And I can't remember the name of the character, but Pandora 
who is aware that this consciousness is coming, that there's this awakening at hand, right? That Lestat's right. music is waking everybody up. She goes up into the Himalayas to try to enlist, I think, the help of this other ancient vampire. And the other ancient vampire is like, leave me alone. I've got my palace. We're all having fun. The people, I think people are coming to be sort of not blood sacrifices, but to offer up their blood because it's it's hot, whatever. And so Pandora's like, okay, and she leaves. And then Akasha just slaughters that vampire and everybody in his palace. And I remember Karen throwing the manuscript down and saying to mom, how could you do that to that poor vampire? He was just having a good time up on that mountain. I don't know what, what is wrong with you <laughs> that you would do that to that poor man. And I, you know, mom saying, that's what you focus on. Anyway. Yes, I love um, that Karen takes everything so personally. The two of them, watching television with the two of oh. them was like, okay, you realize this is these are all fictional characters. They would get so <laughs> upset. Uh, fuck I'd it. be like, this, yeah. is, this is fiction. Totally, totally. I, I just, it, but at the same time, you sort of want that as a writer, right? You want Absolutely. somebody to get that wrapped up in your stuff, right? So Absolutely. Um, That's a great honor to get somebody so worked up. Right. My favorite thing that anybody ever said, I had people say after they read, say, Uncle, they didn't want it to end. They wanted to keep mm. living in the world that the book had mm -hmm. created. Yeah, that's that's the highest praise. That was pretty Absolutely. high praise. Yeah, totally. Um, so I don't, I don't remember what question you asked that got me off on that, but I think it was about, you know. Well, we were talking where about where that we left off in book two and what book three was about. So mm -hmm. I think we're there. I think one of the there were things that I was able to do writing in her world that she gave me permission to do that I was hesitant to do in my own books. And, you know, I'm always, I love dialogue and I love to write a lot of dialogue, but I always feel there's this pressure not to make anything, particularly anything if you want to have a suspenseful engine under it, too talky, right? And I smart from some old reviews about my chatty books and all that sort of stuff. But, but as you have talked about, and very deliberately and very emphatically and very passionately had an almost Victorian storytelling style. Absolutely. You know, and the Victorians, I just read, I had a sort of experience, which I can talk about if we don't run out of time, but I read Wuthering Heights, kind of at your suggestion. You, I was saying, what should I read next? And you were like, why don't you read some of the classics, you know, and, and if it has a connection to your mother, all the better, right? Um, and Wuthering Heights is very much told in a way that, that Anne liked to tell stories, which is someone is going to sit you down and describe the full depth of this emotional experience to you. They're going to give you their testimony almost, you know. Well, they're going to tell somebody else in the story a right. story. And, the, right. and in the process, tell you a story. Exactly. And um, so, but... The scene in this book that I was able to just cut loose in Anne Rice style on, uh, thanks to her, was there is a roundtable meeting of all of the... There is a supernatural threat that is discovered out in the world that could impact the war, and all of right. the immortals have to sit together and talk about how they're going to handle it. And putting all of those characters at the table and letting them unfurl their points of view, it was very much modeled after the scene in Queen of the Damned where the vampires all gather prior to the arrival of Akasha to hear, um, I always confuse the twins, the fans are going to come for me. I think it's Mahabharata. I can't remember which twin is walking and which twin is um, at the Sonoma I compound. can't either. That's why I just said the twin. I think it's Maharet, and I think the one approaching that was separated from her is Mekaray. But Maharet tells her story of the ancient and all that sort of stuff. Those types of 
it's it's very high fantasy. It's now con- associated with Game of Thrones. I love that style. If you right. if you've built the supports for it, they get all those characters there, and you've uh, delineated them enough that the reader can sort of keep track of them in that sort of large group scene, if you will. So that was yeah, it's a, a scene very that, strong yeah, tradition. Totally. So it was. Um, it was it was great, but I think you know what some people are are pointing out, and this may seem redundant given this is really true. I think of all of her works is that this book is very much about death and resurrection, and I think some of that comes from it being about the war. In a respect, it was a, it was a death for a lot of things in Europe and the Western world in particular. But you know, it's it's it, it will be for people who are grieving Anne and saying goodbye to Anne, it's going to be an emotional read. I think for that reason, we are, um, Granny Goodwitch, who was a beloved fan of Anne's, who is a beloved Linda. fan of Anne's, yes. a person of the page. We're Linda, actually right? recording this on her birthday. We are. We're recording this on her birthday. Yes. Happy birthday, Linda. She has the last book mom ever signed in her possession. It's an advanced copy of this book that we were able to get to her. And it is quite literally the last book that mom ever signed. So, uh, I think granny knows that, but if she doesn't, we just told her. So keep Surprise. that book close. Yeah. Keep that book close. But you know, it was, um, I, it's getting good reviews, which has been a, a joy. Um, it's, it's getting an enthusiastic response. And I think it does really, um, clo- it doesn't. Cl- it finishes much about the series. It brings it to a satisfying conclusion, and I think that um, I hope that readers will be satisfied. And I hope that, as I described earlier, that kind of unique um, subset of Anne Rice fan that had a particular affection and has always had a particular affection for Ramses and for you know. Th- here's the thing that I always forget to say: this world's the, the cosmology of this world is almost like the inverse of the vampires, right? The vampires have to take life to live forever. Ramses has no such curse. It's just an elixir that he drinks once and it gives him the gift of immortality. Vampires don't eat food. Ramses can eat as much as he wants and he never gains weight. Um, Sexual intercourse stops really being a thing for the vampires in the world. It becomes, their relationships become more passionate and entangled and emotional. Ramses and Julie go at it like rabbits. <laughs> you know, right. it's a it's an adventure world. If that makes any sense, it's an adventure world. This is more the tone the the tone of the original book. The pacing of the original book was breakneck, short chapters, racing through Cairo, racing through London, all this sort of stuff. And we've tried to keep that feel right along. And I think over the course of three books, we did so. Anyway, that's that's my hour long pitch for this book, but also you know. So the book is out, and people can get it yes. how? Yes, it's everywhere. We have links up on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. Obviously, um, this is a paperback original, which I know a lot. It confuses a lot of people. What does that mean? All, well, all three of these books were not published in hardcover, and I know I always get people asking on social media, "Where can I get the hardcover?" And with one rare exception, the British publisher of *The Mummy* in 1990 did a hardcover edition, which is out of print. And so, if you've got one, hold on to it. Yeah, because right. that was it. Um, these books are paperback originals, which means they're published in trade paperback, which is a larger format and somewhat right. pricier. And obviously, they're available in digital as well for, for e-readers. Um, Anne's fan base seems to be split almost 50% between digital and paper. 
Like she is, she's, which I think is true of a lot of authors, but it's always been true of her as well. So um, the answer is you can get the book anywhere. And obviously Garden District Bookshop, if you're in New Orleans, has a lot, probably has a lot of copies on hand because they were lovely and did that midnight opening we talked about earlier in the episode. So it's everywhere. And always carried the complete unexpurgated mm -hmm. Anne Rice Library. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I always buy um, the the either hardback or paperback version of the book and then read it digitally. Do you? <laughs> I love having the book as a yeah as a sort of talisman as a possession. Particularly, you know, if I know the author or something, I'll have it signed. But right. I frequently buy the book to have it on on hand, but I almost always read everything digitally. It's so much easier with my vision. Well, and you know, that's been a big part of that digital revolution in reading that they thought it was going to be a young techie person's game. And what they found out is that for, for, for older people who have struggled with small print on books, who don't want to hold a 900 page large print edition, because that's how long it would sometimes have to be for them to yeah. make a large print physical book. This has been a revolution. This has brought people back to reading oh my God, for pleasure. It's amazing. Yeah. I literally thought I had lost reading in bed. Hmm. I couldn't get enough light to read a book, you know, propped up in bed. And so I had mm -hmm. just given up on it. But now that I can now that I can open Kindle on my iPad and it's backlit, I can yeah. see the pages again. So yeah. it gave me back reading in bed. I, I I think it's a great blessing. I love digital. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. Takes um, the struggle out of it. You you made me think of something else. There was something you just said about reader digital or and anyway, I I oh yeah, buying the physical book. I I find I inevitably do that with any uh mainstream publication of a gay author now. I will buy the physical version of the book because I know the markup's higher and it's better for their publisher and I always want the, to support um queer authors in that regard. And so I've got all of these YA. I don't read a lot of YA, but I'm starting to because there's just this boon and um queer men and women and uh, trans individuals writing stories for the young adult market like they never did before. So I'm going to have to start reading young adult fiction more <laughs> because these books are piling up, but I buy them in hardcover as soon as I see that they're coming out. And it's uh, almost like a collector's item too. How so. lovely. And I love yeah. that that's more and more the case, that that those stories are being told more and more. There was so little of that. Like that was the that teacher in high school who gave me a copy of um, Patricia's Frontrunner mm -hmm. connected me with a world that I literally did not know exist. And there was no evidence yeah. of it existing anywhere that I could see. It was like the one door that I could go through. So I'm mm -hmm. delighted to hear that that is a much more prevalent thing. But the book yes. to buy right now is... Ramsey's, Ramsey's the Damned, The Reign of Osiris. Yes, indeed. It is, you know, the final novel. I sort of hate saying that. I've trained myself to say it, but it is, um, I think um, it is, it embodies everything about Anne's work that, that made Anne remarkable. So that, that's, you know, that's, that's my truth. And I think that's the book's truth. And I hope that that readers feel the same way. And I, I'm, you know, proud that it is the book we are giving to people in this particular sad moment. So Ramses the Dam, The Reign of Osiris, available. Go to our Facebook page and we'll direct you from there. Absolutely. And until next time and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. 
And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.